TCRED receiving. TCRED, I've got a crew inbound to you there with a young adult male pulled out of the river in a cardiac arrest. Looks to be in his 20s, but we've no ID on him. CPR ongoing at present, no shocks advised, temperature unrecordable, ETA is five minutes there. Over. Roger that control. This is the case.report. Welcome back to a new episode of the case.report. Mohammed Hams is my name, and I'm delighted to have you with us. We're back with a very special winter special, and we truly are in the depths of it now. It's cold and it's dark and it's miserable, not to mention the extra strain on our EDs and in EMS as a whole. So it's more important than ever that we look after ourselves and look out for each other over the weeks ahead. So I don't know about you, but that pre-alert put a right chill in my spine. I better go let the team know what they're in for. Joining me are my esteemed trainee colleagues, the inimitable Callum and Jimmy, as well as our friend Peter Conroy, who's a DFB paramedic and a very experienced water rescue specialist. Right, let's get to it. Hey guys, how's it going? Great to have you here with us. Cheers, thanks Mo. Great to be here. Hey Mo, how's it going? How are we doing? Are you well? Delighted to have you three with us. That's fantastic. Right, okay, so we heard the pre-alert there just before we came on. Callum, what's going through your head? Well, a lot at this point. Uh, it's obviously a, a big, complex case coming in, so we're going to need a lot of resources. Uh, it's probably going to be a prolonged resuscitation requiring multiple interventions. So we definitely recruit a big team, uh, let the ED consultant on duty know, let ICU know, make sure there's a second ED reg at least. And then, you know, in terms of allocating team roles, we're going to need a, a nurse team leader to scribe and really run the ACLS algorithm, calling out the timings and drug delivery timings. And then we're going to need an airway doctor and nurse, a circulation and drugs nurse, and then a procedures doctor. And then once the team assembled, just run through everyone's roles and make sure everyone's aware of the modifications of ACLS in hypothermia in terms of drug delivery and things like that. Perfect. Yeah. And um, that kind of nicely sums up the important bits there of your zero point survey, getting yourself, your team, your equipment and the resource environment ready for this case that's coming in. So as we're saying that, and as you're finished briefing your team, the patient comes in the door and uh, Peter's there to give you your handover. What are we doing, lads? You well? Uh, here we go. A uh, 22-year-old male found face down in the water, unresponsive on rescue, unknown of time in the water and unknown person. Taken out of the, the water horizontally. Temperature after he's been taken out has read low, so it's below 34. Positive pressure ventilation given. Superglottic put in place. Uh, CPR with Lucas started straight away. Defib put on. Pads on. Uh, assist lay from the start. Trino shocks advised. All wet clothes have been taken off and hot packs have been put in situ. Fantastic. Thanks Any so much. Questions? Yeah. Do we um, know anything about this guy? Nothing at all. Okay. He was just found face down. No right. uh, ID or anything on him. Okay. And have any, any drugs been given? No drugs have been given. Perfect. Thank you. So uh, guys, let's carefully transfer him onto our trolley um, change over to our pads and we'll do a rhythm check. Get the patient over onto our trolley. Pads are on and you look over at the monitor and there is VF on the monitor. Okay, so let's charge the defib, continue chest compressions until it's charged, and then deliver a shock and resume chest compressions. And we need IV access and a VBG. Okay, so the team is working hard getting all the different monitors on, making sure the patient is nice and dry. Uh, they get IV access and send the sample off for a blood gas. And uh, when that's all just about finished, it's about time for the next rhythm check. There's no palpable pulse. And there's uh, no organized electrical activity on this, the monitor. Okay, so we have asystole. Our priority is rewarming him. So we have IV access. And we need to replace his intravascular volume. So can we begin infusing warm crystalloid through the level one device? We get the bear hugger on. And uh, Jimmy, are you happy to exchange his LMA for an ET tube? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I don't always switch out a superglottic airway for an ET2 and not a possible cardiac arrest, but I think definitely in this circumstance, it uh, definitely calls for it. Yep. And Jimmy very, very ably excites a size eight, the tracheal tube, yes. uh, which is 22 centimeters at the lips. And he's confirmed it with uh, misting in the tube, equal air entry, equal chest tries, and of course, entitled CO2 on the monitor. Super. So Jimmy, while you're there at the top of the beds with your McGraw in your hand, anything else we can do? Yeah, I'm thinking I can probably pass a large bore NG and an esophageal temp probe. Emptying the stomach might also be beneficial given there could be a lot of water in there, which isn't going to do his temperature any good. Yeah, absolutely. And while you're there and once you've done all that, it might be a good time to uh, get the uh, Hamilton set up as well. So someone wheels the vent over to you and asks you what settings you'd like. Well, if we're lucky enough to have a Hamilton vent with CPR mode, I'll switch it to that. But otherwise, uh, it'll be a FiO2 of 100 with a resp rate of 12, tidal volumes of 5 mil per kilo. And I'd probably keep the peep at 5 to start. Great. Um, Mo, we've got a esophageal core temp. Yeah, so it's up on the screen now and you've got a core temperature of 28 degrees. Okay, so let's continue with our high quality chest compressions where we're going to withhold uh, adrenaline until his, or any other meds until his core temperature gets above 30 and really focus on actively rewarming him. So we have the bear hugger on, we've got warmed IV fluids running. Can we place a Foley catheter three-way so we can irrigate his bladder with warm saline? And before we start the irrigation, can we pull his urine for a tox, please? Yeah, absolutely. So you've got a urine sent off for tox there and the three-way catheter is in place and the irrigation fluid, the warmed irrigation fluid is running in. Okay. So team, we're dealing with uh, asystolic hypothermia, cardiac arrest. Uh, let's make sure we're addressing any other potential reversible causes. Do we have the VBG back yet, Mo? Yeah. So you're looking at the printout and your pH is 7.1. We've got a PCO2 of 4, a PO2 of 9, a lactate of 8, a potassium of 4.6 and a glucose of 4. Okay, so no obvious reversible causes there. I think we can give him some dextrose for the low glucose. We don't need to treat his potassium. His CO2 is low because he's not metabolizing much because he's hypothermic. So we just need to be conscious of our ventilator settings, Jimmy. And I think after the next rhythm check, would you be able to do an echo and have a look at his heart? Yeah, there's no problem. Okay, so is it time for a rhythm check yet, Mo? It is indeed. So we paused Lucas and there is no palpable pulse and PA on the monitor. Okay, so this is a change. We have electrical activity. That's a good sign. Uh, any pericardial effusion, Jimmy? No. Okay. And what does the heart look like? Can you see any organized cardiac contractility? Uh, it doesn't look like there's any organized cardiac activity, just some flickers of contraction there. Okay. So we've just resumed chest compressions and we've ruled out tamponade now. His last temperature was below 30 degrees, so we're not giving any medications and we're just continuing to actively rewarm him. Have we got a current temperature, Mo? Yeah. So we're up at 29 degrees Celsius now. Okay. So Jimmy, what's next? Uh, pleural lavage? Yeah, I think that's reasonable. Uh, I can put a chest drain in on the right side. Fantastic. And before we do that, can you quickly take a look at his lungs with the ultrasound? Yeah. Uh, looks like there's B lines bilaterally. Okay, so that excludes pneumothoraces. So we've ruled out another reversible cause, tension pneumothorax. And B-lines might be suggestive of interstitial edema from his drowning. We could uh, maybe go up from 5 to 10 on the PEEP, on the ventilator. And uh, is it time for a rhythm check? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so we're looking at the uh, monitor and there is a perfusing rhythm again, but still no palpable pulse. Okay, what's his latest core temperature? We're at 30 degrees now. Okay, can we give a milligram of adrenaline, please? And this is going to take time, uh, this resuscitation. So I think it would be wise now to put in a femoral central line and arterial line. Would you be happy to do that, Jimmy? Yeah, no problem. Great. How are we doing on temperature, Mo? Okay. So as you said, it's all taking a bit of time. And after that, art line and CVC are in place and we've continued our various rewarming strategies. Our temperature is now up at 31 degrees. Super. So can we have a rhythm check when it's time to do so, please? Yeah, absolutely. So again, we pause and uh, there's organized electrical activity on the monitor. Super. Can we feel a central pulse? No, still no palpable pulse. Okay, we need to feel for up to a minute um, because he's likely to be very hypertensive and bradycardic and it might be quite difficult to feel. We don't want to put him back in VF with chest compressions. So can you have a quick look at the, the heart during that minute, Jimmy? Yeah, there's actually some organized cardiac contractions here, though it looks very bradycardic. Mo, has anyone feel, felt a pulse? Yeah, so actually, as Jimmy's saying that, we're feeling the carotid pulse and there's actually a faint pulse there. Okay, and we have our art line in. So what's his current blood pressure? So the art line is giving you a reading of 60 over 40 with a heart rate of 35. Super. So that is a perfusion-capable pressure. I think we can say we have return of spontaneous circulation here. I don't think restarting chest compressions would be beneficial for him. Is everyone in agreement? 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. sounds good. Super. He's profoundly bradycardic and hypertensive. So, Jimmy, is any utility in giving him atropine or pacing him here? I don't think so. Uh, he's still very hypothermic, and the bradycardia is likely to just be a physiological response to that, and the treatment for that is to rewarm him. So he's likely to be very intravascularly depleted, so let's just keep going with aggressive fluid resuscitation. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think we should start a vasopressor through the central line? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good idea. What do you reckon, adrenaline? Yeah. Okay. And Jimmy, uh, Mo, can we get a 12 lead ECG and a portable chest x-ray, please? Yeah, absolutely. So your um, portable chest shows bilateral infiltrates and the ET tube two centimeters above the carina. Well done, Jimmy. And ECG shows sinus bradi, no ischemic changes, and some other changes we'll talk about a little bit later. And the NG tube is sitting well below the diaphragm. Brilliant. Um, so our tubes and lines in the right position. I presume ICU are ready to whisk the patient immediately away from us and up to their beautiful unit, Mo? <laughs> no way. No beds available in ICU, but uh, they'll work on something in the next 48, 72 hours. Okay. So ED, ED critical care unit it is. Um, anything else we can optimize here, Jimmy? Uh, no, Callum. I think I've done everything I can for this patient. Where is ICU? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you did a great job. So uh, well done, team. Excellent. Well done, everyone. That's a very, very well-managed case and yeah, a very good outcome to what's often a kind of fairly devastating pathology to come in through the doors. I'd say just for anyone listening at home, just to highlight that this was a fast forward mode. Things don't happen quite as quickly in real life, especially not with hyperthermic patients. These are very, very long and protracted resuscitations, but yeah, very well managed um, by Callum and, uh, and the team. All right. So... Let's kind of move on to the discussion. There are a couple of bits in this case to unpick. So let's start with the drowning. So we'll kind of briefly talk about that. So what is drowning? Does anyone have a kind of a definition for it or that we can talk about? Well, uh, Mo Webster's defines drowning as the process of experiencing respiratory impairment from submersion or immersion in liquid. With respiratory impairment uh, being the key thing here, um, the D word has no business being there without that. Um, I mean, otherwise you just get wet. That was the WHO um, definition you gave us there, Jimmy. And yeah, absolutely. Like you said, respiratory impairments is the key thing. And there's a lot of other older terms that you might hear kind of still floating around to discuss different variations, but they're neither commonly used or kind of really useful these days. So we'll leave them out uh, of the discussion here. And the only meaningful distinction really is fatal or non-fatal. But what about salt or fresh water? Does that make any difference? So it doesn't really matter as much as you might think. Uh, the salt means that there is a different osmotic gradient, but that doesn't seem to have a greater effect on the degree of the lung injury or the uh, electrolyte abnormalities. Fresh water is more a uh, hospitable environment, so you get a, a greater microbial burden with fresh water. Okay. So yeah, no, absolutely, Peter. And uh, so how the damage is done is really determined by how much rather than what kind of water. More water means more surfactant washout, more damage to the alveolar capillary membrane, more frothy pink stuff coming up in the tube uh, from the bloodstained pulmonary edema, and more atelectasis, perf uh, ventilation perfusion mismatch, bronchospasm, and decreased lung compliance. So just while you mentioned pink frothy stuff, Mo, like Pete, if you see that in a pre-hospital victim, what do you do? Are you trying to suction that? Or? No, you just bag through as much as you can. I've dealt with a lot of the drowning cases out of Liffey and I haven't actually dealt with a lot of pink frothy. It's a lot of white froth that just uh -huh. comes up and it literally keeps on coming. So the best thing you can do is just bag through it, get oxygen into them. That's what the person needs, oxygen. Okay. So it's like pulmonary edema. You're not, you're not trying to suction it. Yeah. Great. Thanks for clarifying. No, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. ARDS is an obvious complication considering all this, but you may also see arrhythmias, ischemic cardiomyopathies, laryngospasm, pulmonary edema, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, aspiration pneumonitis, and well, hypothermia. So what is hypothermia, lads? Uh, hypothermia is defined as a core body temperature below 35 degrees, and that can be further broken down into mild, moderate, and severe, with mild being 32 to 35, moderate being 28 to 32, and severe being below 28. So, uh, so yeah, that's great if you have a reliable method of uh, measuring the temperature. But what have we got pre-hospital? You know, uh, like most pre-hospital providers will have tympanic thermometers or if they're fancy uh, auxiliary ones. But most of these are calibrated to read temperatures between 34 and 42. And outside this, they'll either say high or low and refuse to give an exact reading. So that's sort of mild, moderate, severe grading. It's a bit less meaningful uh, in that setting, at least. Um, but what else is there that we can use, Peter? So what we can use is a Swiss staging system. So that's clearly defined uh, numerical way of understanding it. 
So number one is a clearly conscious and shivering person. Two, impaired consciousness without shivering. Three, unconscious. Four, not breathing. And five, death due to irreversible hypothermia. Okay, and so in terms of how they correlate, one corresponds to mild, two to moderate, and then severe corresponds to kind of three and four. For five, that's a bit tricky. Uh, that's someone who's so cold and dead that the normal adage of not dead until warm and dead doesn't apply. Uh, but what are the criteria for this? You know, it's not consistently reproduced, but general principles are if the abdomen and chest are frozen solid or the chest is not compressible, do not resuscitate. But I'm not sure what exactly that means. Uh, we know that the chest wall is stiffer in hypothermia, so a leucus is going to be preferred over, over a human for chest compressions. But beyond that, what does not compressible mean? I don't know. The best thing I've heard about that is to ignore the chest and just the abdomen because mm. the abdomen should always be compressible. And if you have a rigid abdomen, then the patient is just frozen, dead. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, how, how does that all happen anyways? How does lower temperature lead down that pathway to arrest? Whenever I'm teaching about pretty much anything, I always kind of find it useful to bring it back to a paradigm that everyone understands. And in emergency medicine or pre-hospital care, that's our primary survey. So going through our primary survey, and Jimmy, you can help me out with this. Here's kind of how all different things can be affected by hypothermia in the first instance. So with airway, we know you can get laryngospasm and bronchospasm. Yeah. And then with breathing, uh, you're going to get uh, diaphragmatic fatigue, increased dead space, metabolic acidosis, which can be caused by ventilation and uh, decreased hepatic metabolism. Yeah. In your C then, you can get bradycardia, widened QRS, increased PR and QT, which kind of all together increase the risk of uh, VF. Vasoconstriction, particularly peripherally, uh, increased viscosity of the blood. And then those two things then increase the myocardial workload. So neurologically, uh, you may find that the patient has fixed dilated pupils, which doesn't actually carry as much prognostic value here as it might in the warm and dead patient. So, and I suppose the cold itself is kind of neuroprotective then as well. And then in terms of your E, you can think about it in terms of the impaired coagulation, so increased bleeding time if the patient has any wounds or any internal bleeding, but also increased VT risk, kind of paradoxically. But just to bring it back to the metabolic acidosis bit, I'm going to kind of just take this opportunity to nerd out a little bit. I think it's really cool um, in a very, very nerdy way. So when a patient becomes hypothermic, their metabolic rate drops. And you mentioned that earlier on, Callum, uh, which means their tissues consume less oxygen, but they also produce less carbon dioxide. So pretty clear up to that point. So less CO2 production means lower PCO2. So any bit of ventilation that happens will blow off pretty much all that remaining PCO2. That low PCO2 and the low temperature both push the oxygen dissociation curve to the left, meaning the hemoglobin has a higher affinity to the circulating O2. And it kind of greedily latches onto it, making it less available to the tissues, which become anoxic and produce buckets of lactic acid. So all the while then, the liver is similarly reducing its metabolic rate from the hypothermia. So there is less hepatic clearance of the circulating lactate. So there you are. You get a sort of a respiratory cause for metabolic acidosis, kind of. But that's it. I've indulged myself enough. You need to get out more. No. <laughs> <laughs> that is very interesting. I also find the pathophysiology of hypothermia fascinating. And like the uh, hemodynamic effects are huge. So you get this, you know, severe peripheral vasoconstriction, which causes blood, which is a, a physiological response, a protective response to, to prevent heat loss. But it causes hemodynamic shifts. It causes this cold diuresis. So the sensors in the kidneys detect higher flow rates and decide to diuries more. So that's why they can be quite intravascularly deplete. And then it has huge impacts when you rescue people because uh, when they warm up again, you get fluid shifts as they start to vasodilate. So there's a lot going on in the body that is re really interesting in terms of their management. Yeah, yeah. So that, it kind of causes that sort of rebound hypothermia as you're warming them up. It's, uh, yeah, no, it's very cool. So, Peter, like in terms of pre hospital, you're, you're literally teaching on a water, water rescue course this week for DFB. So, what are your like core things we're thinking about when you're uh, treating patients in, in the water? So, the first thing we're going to be looking at is getting their head out of the water. So, our, our main goal is when we get out to the person in the water, they're usually face down in the water. So, our is to get the airway out of it. That stops the drowning process, basically. If we can get a breath into them out there, in, in our life garden days, it'd be mouth to nose. We can get a few breaths in while we're rescuing them. CPR can't be done in water. Um, so that's the best thing we can do is get five breaths into them while we get them out of the water. 
we'll be taking them out horizontally as as best horizontally as we can get them out because a lot of the time it's the rescue boat that comes up and trying to get them into the rescue boat horizontally is very hard they will be hypothermic so we will be trying to move them very slowly because we don't want to put them into arrhythmia if they're not in one already and then when we get them out bvm positive pressure ventilation if, if we can get a super glide again get pads on them see what rhythm we have on them and getting the lucas on as fast as possible to get a good mechanical cpr going and then pre-alerting the hospital. As I said, the Liffey, all the canals, we're literally four to five minutes away from any hospital. So diesel therapy is our best. Fantastic. And it's interesting you said about rescuing horizontal, and that comes back to the hemodynamic ships. And- yeah. So the hydrostatic ste- squeeze that happens in the water, like even when we go in as rescuers, the minute we jump in, we have dry suits on, and we feel the squeeze on, the, on our suits already, and it just fills with air. So we have to purge the air out of our suits to actually squeeze it onto our body so we can actually swim out to them and rescue them. And so that's what happens on the body. So there's a massive squeeze on your body. The minute we take them out of the water, it's a massive drop. Yeah, and it's a a really well-documented phenomenon called post-drop where people get rescued and go into cardiac arrest shortly after being rescued and rescuing them horizontally is important to prevent that. Absolutely, yeah. And another kind of really important bit in the pre-hospital thing that I think is really well emphasized by the CPG that the guys have for hypothermia is that there's not a big, massive emphasis on warming pre-hospital, which I I suppose makes sense, I suppose. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, no, uh, like, uh, uh, literally, not- we have nothing on the DFB ambulances. It's only in the last year and a half that we've got hot packs. Yeah. And that is the only thing that actually, yeah. I mean, our job isn't actually to rewarm. We will exactly. never be able to rewarm a yeah. patient. It's just to stop them getting colder. That's our main goal, I think. That's exactly it. Couldn't have said it better myself. But that's, that is really important in itself, you know, just making sure that that patient doesn't get colder um, on, on route to the hospital. But, you know, especially someone that you've just, taken out of the water that's that's a big challenge in itself so callum what would be i suppose the differences between how you'd manage this case and a normal arrest that comes through the door for you um, yeah so there's a few modifications to the acls algorithm uh, you're still focusing on high quality continuous chest compressions minimizing interruptions providing good ventilation the main difference comes with regards to the drug delivery schedule um, and the shock delivery schedule and that is a product of the fact that it's hypothermia of significantly low temperatures your drug metabolism as you've already talked about mo is impaired um, and they're less likely to respond so you can try up to three shocks below 30 degrees uh, if the patient's in a shockable rhythm and if those don't work you don't give any further shocks until they get above 30 degrees and you don't give any medications below 30 degrees and then between 30 and 35 degrees you double the spacing of the medications um, and that's to prevent a whole load of stuff accumulating that'll then um, hit them when they when the temperature comes up um, but otherwise same core principles of high quality chest compressions Perfect. Yeah. And um, Jimmy, do you want to talk to us about rewarming strategies? Yeah. I mean, I I think it's always important to get the basics right. And thankfully, the pre-hospital guys usually have this sorted for us. Uh, So this means getting the wet stuff off and keeping them dry and warm with blankets. Um, But once once we move on to kind of active rewarming, um, you know, once they're in with us, we can begin some extra external rewarming measures, typically a bear hugger blanket, providing humidified air initially. And overall, in general, you want to try to limit the rate of increasing the temperature to roughly around two degrees per hour. There really isn't actually any evidence of improved outcomes beyond that. So if you're not getting the temperature up uh, too fast, I wouldn't be too concerned. As far as active internal rewarming uh, for patients who have an esophageal core temperature of 28 degrees or less, or to be honest, uh, anybody who needs to be intubated, whether they're unconscious or just simply not ventilating, I'd move straight to pleural lavage with uh, 250 milliboluses of crystalloid uh, warmed to about 40 to 42 degrees. This can generally be achieved by two ways. Uh, There's the two chest drain approach, which I can honestly say I've never seen in real life, uh, where you have one slightly anterior and superior to where you'd normally place a drain, and then another slightly more posterior and basal to drain out that fluid. Alternatively, you can use one chest drain and insert the 250 milliboluses with drainage of that fluid after two minutes uh, yeah completely agree with your thing about the logistics of the two chest drains because especially when you have a lucas device on a lot of the chest wall is inaccessible so even getting one in is quite 
logistically challenging but once you have one in you can do exactly as you say yeah or even the even just the fact that you know you're sticking an extra tube into uh the chest that has a not inconsiderable chance of bumping against that myocardium and setting off another bout of vf so you know not desirable but yeah so with like you know i've used the single chest drain approach in the past and uh, that worked um very well at the time so when we're thinking of an active internal rewarming most people think of airway rewarming with humidified air uh warmed iv fluids and bladder lavage as we did in this case but to be honest all of these have very poor evidence and aren't actually currently recommended uh, at least on up to date uh, as primary rewarming methods Um, but they can still be used but they're primarily to decrease heat loss when uh, active rewarming methods like pleural lavage are being done airway rewarming decreases in sensible heat loss but provides very little benefit uh, as they can't really go above 41 degrees and the ideal setting is actually around 45 degrees. The benefits of warm IV fluids are also minimal uh, as it has very minimal effect on raising temperature. The surface area available for heat exchange in the bladder as well as thought to be too small to be of much benefit. And finally, gastric and colonic irrigation is also not advised as it can lead to fluid and electrolyte imbalances, as well as a risk of pulmonary aspiration in the former, even with an ET tube inside you. Okay. All right. So then what about ECMO? I I asked Andy Neal this question in the matter recently, is that a logistical possibility? And it's challenging to say the least. I think it has been done, but the logistics of getting someone on the pump in the ED requires a huge resource utilization in a very short period of time, which is very difficult to do, but it is the gold standards um, and is something hopefully we can aim for in the future. Yeah, definitely. And um, speaking of gold standards as well, just uh, something that I'll definitely kind of be taking away in future is that we should all, we should be aiming to get esophageal temperature probes in to all these patients as early as possible. I know a lot of the time we end up using rectal probes, which are which are okay, but uh, you know it's the same probe as an esophageal probe. You know, so it's, uh, it's just uh, it's just a matter of where you put it, and uh, you get much more accurate core temperatures with, uh, with with an esophageal probe. It's still not quite a Swan-Gans catheter. But but we won't be putting that in the ED anyway. So esophageal is our next better threat. Yeah, we, we had one and we were worried that the rectal probe was stuck in some frozen poo. So we just took it out and put it in the esophagus. Not the same one, I hope. Just kidding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we got a new one. <laughs> and can I just ask you guys what you feel about uh, like cessation of efforts? You know, where, when do you decide that this is futile? Like Mo's gone through some really amazing physiology that they can have crazy high lactates which can cause big acidoses and, you know, the older dads, they're not dead till they're warm and dead. What temperature are you punting for? Yeah, so I suppose we're we're technically talking about uh, over thirty two degrees. That's the uh, that's the appropriate answer, isn't it? Um, I haven't been in, involved in a case like this where there's been cessation of efforts before that point. But yeah, um, I don't know if any of you guys have. I actually, I, I, I'm not sure where I, st- I feel about this, to be honest. You have a lot of time in these sort of circumstances. Uh, I'm not quick to uh, withhold CPR uh, or other active measures until, I, I don't know, to be honest, I, I'm not sure where I stand on it because I think, to be honest, I'm going to be doing prolonged resuscitation on all of these patients. Uh, it's very hard for me to imagine not giving active resuscitation for at least an hour and yeah. keeping them to a temperature or getting them to a temperature of 32 degrees. Okay, yeah. So like yeah. Much, many of these decisions, it's a team decision. Yeah. yeah, especially since a lot of these patients are young people. Um, so it's, it's, it's very hard to cease resuscitative efforts um, before getting to a point where you can say for certain that it's futile beyond that point. And just kind of on that as well, um, during my deep dive into the physiology, I was looking back at different case reports of hypothermic patients coming in and Every decade you go back, you see new or you see different kind of endpoints that are considered like irretrievable beyond that, you know, so like one of them was saying like a pH of 6.9, um, like about 20 years ago or something like that. And I think the case report said something like, you know, um, it's almost unheard of that a patient with a pH below 6.9 uh, survives or something like that. I'm just like, I've seen several patients coming in with pHs of well below 6.9 and they've done very well, you know, uh, or a lactate above 10, I think one of them said, um, I'm just like, uh, that's not really the reality anymore. So I don't know. I think this is as the standards of our care improve, that is going to be, um, I think it's going to change over time again. Okay. So just to let's take maybe one point from each of you that you kind of take away from this. Yeah. So my point would be 
oxygenation. So if we're dealing with a drowning, it doesn't matter if they're cold. What their body is missing is oxygen. So getting positive pressure ventilation, getting those breaths in before you start CPR is, is massively important. Getting their head out of the water and stopping the drowning process. That's a that's the main thing I'd be advocating for every rescuer or a paramedic to be starting is start with your five breaths first and then CPR. I think my main takeaway would be around the plural lavage and not to be afraid of it. For me, the your your points on the physiology mo are really um, eye opening. The fact that they can have fixed dilated nerd. pupils, <laughs> yeah, I'm a nerd. <laughs> um, but it has huge implications, you know, because uh, you see a patient with fixed dilated pupils, a lactate of 22, and an under recordably low pH. You know, the team's natural assumption is that that is a, a futile, um, unsurvivable state of affairs and and your explanation of why that might not be the case is is really useful in this specific um pathophysiology yeah i suppose mine would be twofold first of all the um use of the esophageal probe over the rectal probe preferentially which um i suppose i i hadn't been aware of the difference and the fact that the esophageal probe is just a lot more reliable before this and then the other bit is um kind of came up when we were discussing who to bring in from pre-hospital with peter and i suppose considering that the waters in the Atlantic are fairly warm all year round that if you pull someone out of um, out of the water and uh, on our coastline, it's very unlikely that they are they are cold and then dead if they are in cardiac arrest and they're cold. After being pulled out of the Atlantic, they probably died from um, another event such as the drowning or trauma, um, and and the hypothermia isn't really the uh, the driving factor there. So they probably wouldn't be someone that um, I'd recommend kind of um, transporting to hospital, and it wouldn't be someone that I'd commence resuscitation on. Okay, so that's a that's a, a great case and a great discussion, guys. Um, I really appreciate you guys coming on, and that was uh, very stimulating. I think we'll head over to our adult in the room and see what they think. Super, thanks, Mo. Thanks, Mo. Thanks, Mo. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, Jimmy. Our adult in the room this month is Dr. Michael Dunphy, who's the trauma fellow in CUHED. So let's see what he has to say. Hi, Mo. Thanks for having me on. That was a really great case and really well presented by the guys and worked through in a really uh, clear and logical fashion. Uh, I think as well, it's a very timely case. You know, we're coming up to winter now or well, the depths of winter and we are going to have tragic cases of hypothermia presenting in our emergency departments. And on the news, we're going to hear about homeless people being found in the morning after suffering hypothermic cardiac arrest during the night. So um, very, very timely. So for my approach to a case like this, I think just to kind of break it down a little bit, I think it's important to give a bit more consideration to the pathophysiology of these cases. Because as you, as you guys have pointed out, this is going to be a prolonged resuscitation. And if you're team leading on this, you're going to be in the resus room for a long time. And there's a lot of time for people to come up to you and ask you a lot of uh, difficult and unhelpful questions during your management of it. So having a, a good grasp of the pathophysiology is really important to help you um, explain your, your thinking and to get your own thinking clear on this. So for a case like this, I think there's really like there's two pathophysiological processes at play here. There's drowning and there's hypothermia. And now they both lead to cardiac arrest, but through different mechanisms. Drowning, really, you know, this is cardiac arrest caused by asphyxia. So you've got submersion in, in water and that's leading you to inhalation or aspiration of this fluid. And that causes it to fill your lungs and it will cause laryngospasm. And the ultimate outcome is that you've got hypoxia and hypoxia will lead to cardiac arrest you know, through a, a true process of bradycardia and then you'll get uh, ventricular arrhythmias leading to asystole. And that's kind of the process for drowning. And clearly there, there are no upsides to that. There are no benefits to that. That is a disastrous situation. Hypothermia, on the other hand, sure, this will eventually lead to a cardiac arrest, uh, but the process is quite different. So with hypothermia, you know, you've got, as the guy said, you've got this 
involuntary drop in your core temperature from exposure to cold. Um, and as, as you get colder and colder, you start to suffer from initially a bradycardia and then that will often progress to either you may see atrial fibrillation but ultimately you're going to get ventricular arrhythmias in these patients and they're going to go into a VF or VT uh, and into asystole and that's going to be the process through which they have their cardiac arrest. The thing with hypothermic patients is that they you know in cardiac arrest is that they do have a good chance of neurological recovery if the uh, process of hypothermia developed before hypoxia and cardiac arrest uh, occurred. So hypothermia by itself is neuroprotective. And as you touched on this, like as you get colder, basically your, your oxygen demands uh, diminish. And this is protective of the brain and the heart against hypoxic damage. But that, but really, that's that's where the challenge is, you know, is in determining which has come first. Was this hypothermia leading to to cardiac arrest, or is this cardiac arrest that's led to hypothermia? And what what I think conflates the issue a little bit is that we always hear these stories of the child who's fallen through ice and you know has been in the water, been for an hour and gets pulled out and has a you know complete neurological recovery. And those cases, there are certainly case reports of that. But what what we're talking about there, and this is where the two pathophysiologies kind of overlap, is that that's a case of a hypothermic drowning. So this is someone who's fallen into water, into you know freezing cold water, very very cold water. They're initially immersed in it, perhaps so you know they're either trapped in their car if it's a car that's gone into a lake, or if it's a case you probably see in Ireland is more likely a fishing boat sinks. The people that go overboard in it, they're holding on to something, they're swimming in the water for a while. But as time passes, they start to get cold and then eventually the hypothermia sets in, they can no longer swim and they become submerged and then they drown. But the process of a hypothermic drowning can actually be neuroprotective in itself. So these the patients that are involved in a hypothermic drowning, so the person's falling into very, very cold water, they have, there's two processes that are neuroprotective that kick in. So we've all heard of like the mammalian diving response where you get this kind of triad. This is an oxygen conserving triad of apnea, bradycardia, and you get kind of vasoconstriction as well. And that's, that's stronger in kids than it is in adults. And then the, the process of being submerged in very cold water will lead to aspiration of this very cold water. So you're thinking of a person who's in water. It's around their chest. It's around your neck. It's going inside. You're swallowing it. It's going into your lungs. And what this cold water is doing is effectively cooling the heart uh, and the blood and the blood in the carotids and thereby the brain. And what this is doing is that it's extending your hypoxic survival time of the brain where cerebral activity and oxygen demand falls to near minimal levels. So you can, at that stage, you can go into a no flow or a very low flow uh, cardiac output state and still have a good neurological outcome. And I looked at a paper that was published in 2011 in the journal um, Resuscitation. And there they presented a, a summary of case reports on cases of prolonged uh, submersion in cold water that had a good neurological outcome. And what they found was that basically as the water temperature goes up, particularly above six degrees, the chances of a good neurological outcome or survival even dramatically decreased. So at zero degrees, you know, kind of icy water, freezing water, there are quite a few cases of survival and discharge with good neurological outcomes, uh, even with submersion times of up to 50, 60 minutes. And that was sustained up to about four degrees of water temperature. And once it got to six degrees Celsius onwards, the cases tailed off. There were one or two isolated cases in temperature and water temperature, you know, above six degrees, but these had very brief submersion times as well of less than uh, 20 minutes. So I suppose what I'm saying is that if you consider the type of water temperature in Ireland, and if I, uh, if I go onto the Metairn website here and we look at the average monthly sea temperatures here in Ireland. So you'll see that at no point during the year does the water temperature in the sea drop below seven degrees. So we just don't really have that kind of freezing cold water to give us that hypothermic drowning scenario that I think people often think of when they think of cases like this. Um, so just bear in mind, because obviously, of course, there are there are exceptions to this, you know, mountain lakes, streams, rivers, flowing water can all contribute to a lower water temperature. But typically, if you're talking about someone who's been pulled out of the sea in the summer, 
which is when the vast majority of the drownings uh, occur in this country. And you're not going to have been in this scenario where you've likely have had a hypothermic drowning. And, you know, accordingly, like in, in cases like this, moderate to severe hypothermia in drowning seasons other than winter uh, are probably reflective of a longer duration of submersion, um, which would be associated with more severe asphyxia. So I suppose, as you can see, guys, there, there is an element of which comes first to this when we think about the uh, pathophysiology here. So like, is this hypothermia or is this drowning, which has occurred first? And it's, it's at this point, you know, I think that you really need to link in with the pre-hospital providers here to get a good understanding of what the circumstances were around their, uh, this person's retrieval from the water. You know, so what's, what's the temperature? What's the environment like? Uh, what was the duration of submersion? If that's known, how long has CPR been going on? All these things. You need to get as much information as you can from the scene and from the pre-hospital providers. And not to like overlabor the point of the, the pathophysiology, but there is, there is another way of looking at it. And there is a, an, another kind of unique environmental disaster that can occur that can inflict hypothermia or asphyxia on people. And that's avalanches. Uh, and avalanches, when they occur, you know, they, they almost work, if, if you're to study the, 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 the victims of them, it almost works like a kind of randomized control trial where some of the patients will be immersed in the snow and they'll become hypothermic, but they'll be trapped in their car, or they'll be trapped in a building or their tent, and they won't necessarily have asphyxia, but they will have hypothermia. And then there's the other people who are caught in the avalanche who, you know, will have snow in their face and they will have an asphyxia, hypoxic cardiac arrest, very similar to drowning. And if you look at the European Resuscitation Council guidelines on dealing with avalanches, so how they break it up is that if you're so if the avalanche is struck and you're covered in snow, if you're found before 60 minutes have elapsed, so if you're found within the first hour and you're in cardiac arrest, you go down the normal ACLS cardiac arrest protocol with, you know, if necessary, cessation of resuscitation after 20 minutes. If you're found, if it takes longer than an hour to find you, then you go down the hypothermic cardiac arrest pathway. And that means, uh, you know, you get a prolonged resuscitation and, you know, you may have ECMO or you may have whatever else um, and you're not dead until you're warm and dead. So I, I suppose what, what that illustrates there is that, you know, if you're in cardiac arrest within the, that hour in the avalanche situation, you're not considered to have been hypothermic or cold enough, long enough to have suffered a hypothermic cardiac arrest, as opposed to those that are found, you know, two hours later there. The assumption is that you've that you've had a hypothermic cardiac arrest because you've been under the snow for that length of time. So, look, not something we're ever going to face, I think, in Ireland or the UK. But I, it does just give you a different perspective on the uh, hypothermia versus uh, hypoxia uh, in terms of how the pathologies can be managed. So I suppose that's really my thoughts on how I approach these cases when I try to figure out, you know, what has actually happened to the patient. Now, obviously, this is completely situation dependent. And as I said, I rely a lot on the pre-hospital people to give me a good idea of what's uh, what the situation has been like when the person was rescued. We mentioned just briefly about the management of it. And I think you guys covered that really, really um, exhaustively. There is a role in hypothermic cardiac arrest um, for ECMO as well and there are there are scoring systems that determine you know if you may be a good candidate for it there's one system in particular that's the hope score that's hypothermia outcome prediction after extracorporeal life support for hypothermic cardiac arrest patients you can get this on md calc and what that looks at is the patient's age their sex the hypothermia i'll come back to that in a moment the duration of cpr their serum potassium their temperature and the temperature is the temperature on arrival to uh, to resus so the arrival uh, temperature on admission the serum potassium score used to be the kind of the main decider on whether or not a patient went forward for uh, for ECMO. And the reason was that if your serum potassium was high, it was thought to represent cell lysis occurring, you know, in the brain or in the cardiac tissue. And it was a suggestion that you had suffered hypoxic injury to these organs. Whereas a normal serum potassium would kind of suggest that maybe you maybe you haven't, maybe there has been that neurocardioprotective element from the cold temperature. And interestingly, in the HOPE score, they when they look at hypothermia, they break it down into hypothermia with asphyxia. So that's your head fully covered by water or snow. 
and in cardiac arrest when you're pulled out of it versus hypothermia without asphyxia. So that's someone who's immersed or indoor or outdoor in cold exposure. So, you know, lying on the ground or uh, lying in the snow. And the hope gives you kind of a probability score. And if you score over 10% on it, then you may be considered a candidate for um, uh, for ECMO for these patients. So, um, so that's it for me. Thanks very much for having me on. For our last segment, we're sticking with the theme and talking about winter planning. With all the extra strain in the system this time of year, how do we keep the wheels on the cart? How do we keep our systems working? Whose job is it to make sure the place doesn't fall apart? How do they do it? Professor Conor DC is joining us to try and shed some light on some of this. Prof DC is an emergency medicine consultant and the clinical lead for emergency medicine in Cork University Hospital, where he's also the interim clinical director for unscheduled care. He's the professor for emergency medicine UCC, the clinical lead for the major trauma audit, and the South Trauma Network lead. And we're delighted to have him with us. Thank you, uh, Professor DC, for uh, coming on and chatting to us about this. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, right, I'll start off with something really broad and we'll see where you want to take us with it. So coming into the winter months, how do you think about maintaining safety and quality of patient care in your department? I suppose the reality for all of us is that winter is an all year phenomenon now at this stage. There was once a time when you would get some degree of reprieve during the summer months, but we don't really see that now. And certainly during the pandemic, things have been all systems go 12 months of the year. So it's a sort of a false description, really, I think, to get particularly focused on winter. But there are things that are different during the winter months. So, for example, we have more seasonal viruses. We have more RSV in our pediatric population. We have more influenza. We obviously have COVID to try and contend with as well since March 2020. So uh, winter has added layers of complexity now than what it had pre-pandemic. How do I make sure that my department is safe? Well, it's not easy is the first thing to say. It's not easy when you have demand that's outstripping capacity. So we rely on the hard work of our staff our registrars, our nurses, uh, our HCAs, our porters. We really and truly rely on them to support the delivery of safe and good quality care. And so to a large extent, my role within the emergency department is to support staff in doing the right thing, creating a structure whereby the right things happen, providing clinical risk meetings and a clinical risk framework so that when things go wrong, that we can intervene early, identify them early, be transparent, be open and be open to learning. There will be a lot of focus on winter funding. And certainly over the last couple of years, winter funding has been very valuable in terms of getting in resources to support staff. The reality is that when winter funding gets announced, by the time you would have recruited registrars or SHOs, or by the time you would have recruited nursing staff, there's six, nine months lag time and often with winter funding, although not so much in the last two years, but often it was time limited. So you might get funding to employ locum staff for a period of time, but then that time ended. And the challenge associated with that is there is usually not locum staff out there to employ, even if you if you wanted to. And then, of course, we always prefer to have substantive appointments rather than locum agency staff because we invest time and energy in educating those that are in full-time employment. They get an induction program and we get to know them. We get to build educational and training bespoke to their education training needs consistent with what the department needs. So I guess I'm we're segueing now into winter funding and there has been a lot of discussion around the winter plan, around winter planning. There's a, you know, there's 77 million worth of initiatives announced. One of the frustrations from my point of view is, you know, is is the fact that 9 million 
Only 9 million of the 77 million is going into acute services. I think acute services need a hell of a lot more investment than that. But, you know, there's a finite pot and obviously there are lots of people trying to feed from that pot, including our GP colleagues, our ambulance service colleagues, our palliative care colleagues, colleagues in mental health. These are all important parts of the jigsaw in terms of a sort of a holistic healthcare outlook. But um, to my mind, the acute sector does need more funding to do what it what it's required to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that kind of ties in nicely with something that I wanted to come back to. So that all year round strain that you mentioned, and you know, we can only expect that to increase over the coming months. And with those finite resources that we have allocated to us, take us through what you're thinking would be or how you prioritize what to devote those finite resources that are allocated to you. So in terms of supporting system performance, do you prioritize staffing over, you know, acute bed capacity or, you know, what would be your thinking? Yeah. So when you're developing your business cases or, or your ask for the winter funding, what happens here in Cork is that we get an email from South South West Hospital Group. They say they're preparing their winter planning submission. Can you prepare? What would you have included in it? And so we, uh, I'm clinical director for Unscheduled Care. So I get together with my assistant director of nursing and my business manager, and we engage with bed management. We mm -hmm. engage, engage with the other clinical directors and clinical leads of associated mm -hmm. services. And we sit down and we talk to them about what would be on the shopping list. What mm -hmm. would they prioritize? Now, you have to also remember, as I was describing, that some things are deliverable. Other mm -hmm. things aren't. So, for example, right now we're, you know, getting registrar staff is challenging. And while we fill the posts we have, were I to be given six new funding streams to employ six new registrars, I'm not sure that I would be able to recruit six new registrars. As it is, I'm bringing registrars in from South Africa, and that is associated with its own challenges now in terms of travel and mm -hmm. quarantine and uh, and variants and, and and all that. Okay, so in terms of what we put on that shopping list to go into South Southwest Hospital Group which mm -hmm. in turn will send it in to HSE Central, we need to be pragmatic about what it is that we can deliver on. Mm -hmm. There's no point putting in requirements for extra staff if you're not going to be able to employ the staff mm -hmm. or get them in in a meaningful timeline. So that's an important piece. The other thing that I have found over the last number of years is that they will fund ideas that are novel and in particular ideas that align with Sláinte Care and Home First initiatives. So for example, two years ago, we applied for funding for a registrar. This is pre-pandemic. Actually, it's three years ago. It's pre-pandemic. Uh, we applied for funding for a registrar to put out in a car in the community. We now call it the Alternative B Hospital Pathway. And that initiative was a pilot initiative that was funded through winter funding. It paid for a registrar to be out and about in a car uh, five days a week. And on the strength of it, they could see that we were able to, you know, we, we had a 70% non-conveyance rate. 33% of the patients that we saw were over 75. And there was mm -hmm. a similar uh, non-conveyance rate in the over 75s. It aligned with Sláinte Care. It aligned with Home First. It reduced conveyance uh, and ambulance burden by keeping ambulances out in the community. And so the following year, we were able to get it into the national service plan. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, between ourselves and Kerry, there are now six registrars and a similar number of EMTs employed to deliver the alternative pre-hospital pathway. So I guess that's where winter funding can be helpful. You can test drive initiatives, you can pilot initiatives, and then you can get them if they're successful and you write them up and you you know, you promote them and there's buy-in to them, you can get them incorporated then into the national service plan, which is the, that is the sustainable funding model that you want to get your items into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I suppose like you're saying, getting people to buy into the ideas that you have is really important, whether it's for novel initiatives like that or for, I suppose, the needs of the department. So how do you find that, that you best communicate, I suppose, the levels of risk or, you know, particular needs that the department has when you're having those meetings? So that's a very important point in that you can't just go and fly a kite. You have to create a narrative. The narrative that is created for your department is created by you being present at the various hospital meetings. So mm -hmm. for example, you know, I'm regularly at the escalation meetings throughout the week. Mm -hmm. We have a daily escalation meetings. I'm always at the COVID meetings within the hospital and I'm planting seeds at these meetings 
we're putting in risk forms when things bad happen or things could nearly bad happened, if you like. So, and there's an, a, an associated risk meeting that's held monthly. So we're consistent then in what we put in for uh, when it comes to winter planning or when it comes to the national service plan, our narrative is consistent. We're mm-hmm. not suddenly pulling something out of the hat that hasn't already been seeded and socialized with the CEO of the hospital, with the director of nursing within mm-hmm. the hospital, with the executive management board of the hospital. So for example, just to give you an idea, and there's no guarantee that what we've asked for will come through, but as I said, we were asked to produce a list of what we would prioritize for winter planning mm-hmm. 2021 20, 22 and what we had put in for was we wanted to create bed capacity now you can't expect that a bulldozer will come in and build 100 beds for you with mm-hmm. a, with a team of builders so we were looking at how we would create bed capacity and the sorts of things that we were talking about in terms of creating bed capacity were increasing our diagnostics capacity. So we had shorter uh, lengths of stay for our patients, Mm -hmm. increasing our access to community beds uh, so that patients wouldn't be part of the delayed transfer of care grouping. That's detox. That requires them getting out into convalescent facilities, transitional care facilities. These are through private nursing homes in a lot of cases. So you buy beds in private nursing homes. We were advising for case managers that would support the discharge of patients who are difficult to discharge, in particular the over 75-year-old age group. And we were advocating for an initiative to improve weekend discharges so that there would be somebody senior available at weekends to support getting patients out of the hospital at weekends. They're the things that we might not think about within emergency medicine, mm-hmm. uh, within the emergency department, because they're so upstream of us. Yeah. that. Um, but they are the things that cause the congestion in the emergency departments. The lack of egress from our hospitals has an immediate back pressure to the emergency department, which we see and feel every day we come to work in the form of our trolleygar report. So within the emergency department itself, then the sorts of things that we felt we could deliver on in the emergency department was, for example, phlebotomy hours so that our nursing staff, our doctor staff weren't losing time taking blood tests from patients. So we wanted to expand the availability of phlebotomy and Mm -hmm. ECGs at the front door. And that's coming from a different cohort of workers to what emergency nurses are coming from, to what emergency doctors are obviously coming from. So it doesn't suffer with the same recruitment challenges. Mm -hmm. The other group that offloads nursing and medics are admin staff. So somebody Mm -hmm. to answer the phone in the nurses station. The number of times I'm sure you've experienced this too. I can see by the way you're nodding at me. The number of times you pick up the phone at the nurse's station and you cringe because you know there's about five minutes work for you and interruption to what you're doing to answer something that could have been answered by a clerk or an admin person. They're the sorts of things that we will try and get in through winter funding. And Mm -hmm. then what happened last year is the winter funding automatically went into the national service plan. Mm -hmm. Winter funding initiatives automatically graduated into the national service plan. It's not as clear this year as to whether that will happen. My sense is given that many of the things that are funded, for example, private hospitals are in the winter plan that was announced recently, private capacity is 20 million. That's the sort of thing that can get turned off. Whereas acute services, 9 million. I think the reason it is just 9 million is because there's an appreciation that that's probably going to end up then being part of the national service plan. Mm-hmm. So when they were funding this, my suspicion is that they realized that whatever that they funded for acute services in the winter plan would need to be, would need to continue to be delivered in the national service plan. And so they needed to cut the cloth to, to make sure that they weren't overextending in terms of the national service plan. Mm-hmm. So things like ECG technicians, phlebotomists, HCAs, these are things that we'll have applied for in our, in our winter plan. We'll also apply for SHOs and nurses. Mm-hmm. They will go in there, but The ability to deliver on those is challenging. And as I said, what we have put in for, there's no guarantee we will get when this 9 million is divided up across all the acute hospitals in the country. Mm -hmm. Okay. And just to bring it back to what we can do when engaging with our colleagues up the house or downstream in the the hospital system. So how can we engage with them to share the acute risk that we manage every day? Are there particular, I suppose, streaming pathways that you might employ um, at times of acute stress in the system or I suppose engaging a pull culture or anything like that? Look, that's an ongoing challenge. Mm. That's one of the key challenges for us in emergency medicine. The reality is that people across the system feel extremely stretched and 
and extremely stressed. If I talk to my colleagues in the cancer services, mm -hmm. they feel very stretched at the moment because they're catching up with work that wasn't done during earlier stages of the pandemic. So it's behoven on us to try and share the workload uh, with our on-call colleagues in PEDS, Gen Med, orthopedics and general surgery. It's not always that easy, as you well know. There are times when we become the bottleneck. That's not infrequent that we become the bottleneck. And you're dependent on good relationships between the middle grades, between the emergency registrar, the gen med reg, the peds reg, the orthopedic reg, to say we're really under pressure here. And there are patients that are waiting prolonged lengths of time. Can you come on board with me and see if we can make some, you know, make some inroads into taking what will go your way anyway, uh, as regards, you know, peritonitic abdomens, as regards frail elderly who, no matter what way you, you uh, investigate them in the emergency department, they are coming in. So what I would suggest is absolutely it's, it's my role within the broader hospital to advocate for good working relations between in-house services and the emergency service. But it also boils down to you as the registrar or, or the trainee having a good working relationship with the senior who's on out of hours to try and make things move. People do pay lip service to this. Consultants will promise the sun, the moon, the stars of their juniors. And when it comes to it, I rarely see it coming to fruition. And I have come to terms with the idea of upregulating emergency medicine so that it can cope with the demand at the front door that alternative pathways away from the emergency department haven't particularly been successful. They may be successful during office hours when the acute medical unit or the acute surgical assessment unit are open for business. But out of hours, and at weekends, it falls on emergency medicine to make sure that the right thing happens for that patient. And to my mind, it doesn't really make sense that you would have one way of doing things from nine to five or eight to six and another way of doing things outside of those hours. So when I worked in the Australian model, the investment was into the emergency staffing and into emergency departments. And you had very little then in the form of in-house. So for example, we would have one med reg for the emergency department. We would have one surgical reg for the emergency department. We wouldn't have two or three SHOs working for Gen Med or similar numbers of layers associated with the surgical services. So you had senior clinical decision makers available who you would refer to, but the quality of the referral then was robust as well. We would be expected to perform the CT scans and so on and have um, have a fairly robust referral, a well-packaged patient. And that's the, that's the model that is in place in Australia. Different model is in place in the UK. And obviously we're very influenced by the UK and the UK's model of streaming early to facilitate that four-hour target. We're sort of caught between two paradigms of care then in what we're doing, as I see it at the moment anyway, in the Irish setting. We have some people that are committed to that Australian model, which is a well-packaged patient. They've had their advanced imaging. There are other people that see value in getting the patient early to the in-house service. And the problem is when you have two different philosophies at play, then conflict arises at all levels. So conflict arises in the day-to-day -day floor activity, but conflict also arises when it comes to funding streams, because you have acute medicine saying that they need all this staff to support the emergency department, uh, when in actual fact, my argument would be that that staff uh, should be put into the emergency department and, and reduce your reliance on medical SHOs and on surgical SHOs and instead invest in more senior clinical decision makers within those specialties that we refer on to and put in plenty foot soldiers in the emergency department. Now, the foot soldiers in the emergency department need to be on training programs. They need to be supported so that they're doing the right thing and that they're adding value to the patient journey. Perfect. I don't think I could disagree with anything there at all. So I suppose just to start bringing it to a close, and I'm sure there's a lot of things there that we'll probably want to come back and touch on with you again at some point. But in terms of maintaining staff morale during the tricky winter months, what would be your suggestion or what, what kind of interventions or things could, yeah. could we look at? So in I, I think people do need to take responsibility for their own well-being and health. And certainly it's the role of the emergency department to support that. But it is not you cannot take away from that individual's requirement to go and get exercise. You know, the pandemic has taught me that. In fact, I've started dipping myself in the ocean every Sunday morning and it's like pressing control, alt, delete. And you just... But that's my responsibility. You know, we've got a well-being committee now within the emergency department set up 
and it's bringing people and encouraging people who aren't from Cork, who don't necessarily know where the swimming spots are or who don't necessarily know where the running spots are. And I know that they're getting great value out of hooking up with Henrietta, um, who's one of our registrars and one of the CSUN trainees, who's been a real trooper and lead on this in terms of getting off down to Kinsale for a dip in the ocean and all the various initiatives, they're really gold. They are what bring joy to work and and we need that to be supported. But at the end of the day, it's up to the individual as well. So certainly the department, our ability to have nights out, which was a big part of emergency medicine life back pre-pandemic, always great night out after your week of nights with the staff that you were on nights with or breakfast after the week of nights with the staff that you were on nights with. I'm sure like you, many people out there are yearning for that type of activity. And that's really helpful in terms of maintaining morale. But we're, we're going to have to adjust. We're going to have to get into the great outdoors, get up a mountain, get into the water, get out for our runs, you know, get uh, get exercising and maybe reduce the disco dancing. I wouldn't say that now. Well, I'm sure you're still disco dancing. <laughs> uh, if only, if only. But OK, uh, thanks again for taking the time to chat to us. Um, that was great. I'm sure the guys will find a lot of value in that. Thanks, Connor. And that is it for another episode of the Case Dot Report. Thank you all once again for tuning in. A special thanks to our adult in the room, Dr. Mike Dunphy, and our guest, Professor Connor DC. Get in touch and let us know what you think about anything you heard. Find us on Twitter at the Case Report to join the discussion. Subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you liked what you heard, give us a rating or review. It'll help new people find the show. The team will be taking a well-deserved break next month, but we'll be back in February with some more great content. Until next time, may your coffee be strong and your rounds be grand. TCR out.